visions of sugar plums dancing through my head, folks. Long, long ago. 
I never hear from you again. Making presents for their teachers was a wonderful idea, but I should have started in July. I'll pick up a gift card from Panera tomorrow. It's the half, happiest season of all. With those in the fourth or fifth grade, you can go on to your class now if you'd like, fourth or fifth grade. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered or maybe meditated on what it would be like to be in the actual physical presence of God himself? I mean like in all of his glory, not, not in some sort of mediated by the Holy Spirit or by the person of Jesus necessarily, the resurrected Jesus that's promised to be in our midst now. I mean God in his entire fullness, the full measure of who he is. And I don't mean like at death, when you inhabit a new immortal physical body. I mean right now, exactly you are this morning, in the clothes that you're wearing, in your skin, with your eyes, what that would be like to be in the physical presence of God in his fullness. I've heard some think and describe it in terms of, oh, I better be just such awesome peace to be in the presence of God like that, or the light, or the beauty, or the sense of love that would just surround. And the words that are used seem to be serene and sweet and comforting and those sorts of things. But I have another take based on Scripture of what it would be like to be in the literal presence of God. Things like Exodus 33 verse 20 come to mind where where God is having a conversation with Moses and he's about to reveal himself in a great way, but he lets Moses know, you can't see my face. I'm going to hide you in a cleft of a rock and I'll pass by and you can see my backside. But you can't see my face, he'll say in verse 20, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And then later Moses gets to be sent to meet God and they have several meetings. And there's one scene where the Israelites, they beg Moses, you've got to go for us. If we were to encounter God face to face, we would surely die. So Moses, he goes and hangs out with God. And when Moses comes back, he's glowing. Do you remember the story? Like radioactive, he's glowing and he's got to wear a veil because he's so bright. And I would love to see a picture of that. Wouldn't that be amazing? You have in John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, 
has made him known. See, if I had a guess, seeing God in all of his glory, which the Hebrew Shekinah, this, the Shekinah glory of God, in all of his glory, the, his perfect essence, I don't think it would be full of feelings of joy and peace and light. I predict it would rather feel like your flesh was being ripped off of your bones. That if God in all of his perfect and complete holiness, in all of his power, his full access and visibility to the divine presence and being of the creator and sustainer of the cosmos, it would be so overwhelming, so magnificent, and so powerful for us to even stand in it, I think we would in a moment be overwhelmed by his holy and wouldn't be able to stand. But he is not like us. He is God. There are none that are like him. There are none that are above him. And I know we could become so familiar in our language when referring to God as our friend. And I'm not even saying that he isn't our friend. But you know how that works in terms of refer to, you know, he's our pal, he's our buddy, he's the big guy upstairs. And sometimes we can forget in that spectrum that if he were to really, literally show up in all of his glory, there's not a single one of us that could bear it. And yet, this God has made a promise to show up on the face of the earth and to fix and to rescue what we have messed up and broken. And this becomes the hope of God's people for generations, that God himself, because we're incapable of doing it, will arrive and restore and repair and put back together again everything that has gone wrong, that he will restore order back to creation as he intended from the very beginning. And so how is it in our story that this all-powerful, holy God, this one that none of us will be able to stand in this presence, how is he going to show up on the face of the earth and we exist with Emmanuel, which means God with us? And thus we enter in this season what we call Christmas. It is a celebration of God's mercy and brilliance and humility. And listen to this word, his humility as God himself figures out how to wrap all of his power, all of his glory, all of his Shekinah, all of his holiness into flesh. That this all-powerful God will wrap himself in the form of a baby. Think about the humility that's required on God's part to show up on earth, not as the all-powerful, almighty God that can strike any one of us, would be overwhelmed by his magnificence and power, but he shows up as a crying completely dependent baby. But God took on flesh and lived among us. John chapter 1 verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have got a fancy theological word to describe this. It is the word incarnation. And as we enter into December and as we enter into the Christmas season, what we're entering into is that time when we as God's people celebrate what we call the incarnation of God. That moment where he took on body, he took on flesh, he took on human form, and this is this all-powerful God through a baby, a helpless in every way baby, came to earth. God would give us all that he is entitled to. He would take on flesh. He would show up to the earth 
And you would think God, for who he is, could decide to show up in a brilliant palace, that he could be born into a royal family, into a noble family, to a family of power and influence and prestige. God could choose a couple whose entire beginning as husband and wife was perfect in every way. But when we read our story of this great, almighty, powerful, holy God, he wraps himself in the form of a completely dependent baby and gives them to a couple who already begins their marriage in scandal. Do you remember our story? She's pregnant, and they're not even married yet. And the word gets out, and so when Jesus is born, it isn't to, oh, what a great couple who lives in a royal palace. Who, I mean, it's their scandal and whispers all about. You'll remember they were living as a young couple, poor, living under foreign occupation, the Romans. And not only that, he could have come to Rome. He could have come at least to Jerusalem. He shows up at the little village of Bethlehem to parents who live in Nazareth of Galilee. They're the rednecks, it would appear. And the circumstances of this birth incarnation of God happens in a barn where the Son of God, God himself, is born in a feeding trough, which on those Christmas cards, I know it looks really cute, but I'm telling you, we're talking in real life, saliva and manure and smells. This is a barn that God has decided in all of his holiness to wrap himself up in this baby. And you know why? So that we could see his face and not die that God decided in his great humility to allow us access. And so we celebrate Christmas that God did show up to earth. And he did it in such a miraculous way that his presence would be accessible to us and not kill us. And this is the reason for the season. This is what we've come to celebrate, incarnation. And isn't it interesting that God chose a little baby? Because, I mean, when you think about it, who doesn't love a little baby? I mean, maybe not on the plane next to you on a big, long trip. But, I mean, in the main, who doesn't live a little, love a little baby? They're so cute. They're so sweet. They do. I mean, they're just beautiful. I mean, babies are so helpless and so innocent looking. And we have no fear as we look at babies, unless you're a brand-new parent at that first moment. You might have fear at that moment. But other than that, that baby is accessible in ways that everyone understands. You take a little tiny baby into a nursing home and watch what happens in the nursing home. Watch residents who've been alone and isolated and who haven't smiled in a long time all of a sudden light up when a little baby comes around. You watch people who are rich and poor when a little baby comes into the scene. What happens to everybody's face? Everybody lights up. When you see a little baby, no Palestinian asks, well, is this little baby Israeli or is it Palestinian? There's something about babies that are just accessible. There's something about them that brings to us smiles. They seem to be, even for those who are sick, maybe especially to the sick, and to the poor, and to the demon-possessed, and to the outcast, and to the disenfranchised. This is a brilliant move of God's humility that he would come and wrap his complete holiness in the form of a little baby. This will be good news to the humble. This is what Mary, the mother of Jesus, she sings a song when she knows that she's about to give birth to Emmanuel, to the Son of God. And this is her song. This is what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. See, this is her song. She recognizes who she is. Who's Mary? She doesn't think anything of herself. She does not consider herself to be of high repute, to be of somebody who, if anyone's qualified to carry the Son of God, she recognizes I am simply the humble servant of my God. And so she sings this praise. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. 
His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm, and He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but He has lifted up the humble. Now hear her song. What is she singing about? The day that God showed up to fix creation and all those people who held on to power are going to finally recognize that they have no power apart from God. That all those who are proud and place themselves in high, right, in high places that this God through this baby Jesus was about to do something great for his people. Verse 453, he has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever even as he said to our fathers. And see, what we see is God was coming to rescue and set a different order where the humble would be exalted and all those who held the cards of power would be lowered. He was coming to answer the prayers of those who were under oppression, the victims of injustice, those who were lost in sin. He was coming to be good news to the sick and to the poor and to the orphan and to the widow. Now listen, this is important. If Christmas is not good news to the sick and to the poor and to the orphan and to the widow and to the outcast and to the lonely, to the have-nots of our society, then it is not the Christmas that we're supposed to be celebrating. Let me say it one more time. If Christmas isn't good news to the poor, then it isn't a reflection of the Christmas story that we have in the Bible. That what you have laying in the manger, that little baby, so accessible, especially to those who are humble and weak and suffering, those things of injustice. This baby grows up to be Jesus of Nazareth. And in that face, that continues to be the face of God, what we get to see is his heart towards those who are weak and poor and outcasts. In fact, did you know that's Jesus' chief criticism? When people come against Jesus, it's usually, do you see who he's hanging out with? Do you see what kind of people he's going to eat dinner with? And in it, Jesus is letting them know, this is the face of God. He has wrapped himself in all of his humility so that it will be good news to the poor and to the outcast and to everyone who thinks before God they are nothing, that Jesus' face will remind them as the face of God, you are something. And this is all about you. This is about the promises that I've made. And so 2,010 years later, take a few as we enter into another season where we celebrate this story, I am afraid that our Christmas story has been hijacked and turned into something other than what it started out as. That 2,000 years later, it's possible that our Christmas story has taken on a new form, the form of a monster. Stage right or left, wherever you're at. That I'm concerned that our Christmas has been hijacked by Madison Avenue, and, and then in that our imaginations have been captured not by a little baby, by God himself laying in a manger, but by the Apple store at the University Park Mall. Come on now, somebody give me an amen. I thought that was good when I wrote it. And I don't want to be one of those, I'm not those angry Christians who are ticked off about everything surrounding Christians. You know people like that, right? Happy holidays and then you're angry. No, I'm all right. Happy holiday. I don't care. You know, I'm not, I'm not angry. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to guilt anyone this morning out of buying nice things for your pastor or for your kids or those sorts of things. <laughs> I'm not doing that at all this morning. I just, I'm asking honestly, today in 2010, is Christmas still good news to the poor? 
I, my concern is that those who really are poor, those who have been unemployed for several years now, those who are lonely, those who are out, those who are in nursing homes, those who are in the VA hospital on December 25th, my concern is that Christmas for them is not good news, but rather it's riddled with fear and insecurity and despair. That already as we enter December, there are families, even among this church, where they're already realizing that they don't have the money and the resources to buy for their kids what they want. And there's already fear and panic and anxiety that on the morning of December 25th, it will not be a time of celebration, but a day of crushing disappointment. Maybe you've been there, where you wept yourself to sleep on the 25th of December because you were so discouraged by what you could not do on that day for everyone around you. What you were, and maybe there were even false expectations that were on you, but you lived in it nonetheless. Or maybe for you will be another occasion to put all those gifts on the credit card, just like you did last year, which, by the way, you still have not paid off this Christmas season. And on top of that, you're now paying 18% to some rich dude who lives in a big mansion because he's the CEO of some bank or credit card company, and you're still flipping through the shutoff notices from their utilities. My concern is that Madison Avenue has created for us a monster of expectation that if we don't have the largest and the best and the shiniest, then in the end, we don't have what we really need. And this is my concern with marketing. Years ago, I talked about what marketing really is, if you boil it all down, is marketing is the attempt to convince people that you cannot live without certain things. That's what marketing is. And I had somebody here who actually worked in marketing, had a degree in marketing, and she was upset with me at first because she thought, it makes me look bad. I mean, I'm not trying to make you look bad. And later she came and said, you know, that really is true. In the end, it is to present something in such a way that when you see it, you'll say to yourself, how did I ever live without a salad shaker before? And you've probably experienced this in your life, haven't you? I mean, you get an HDTV, you go back, and it's just, I can't go back to this. Once I've got a DVR, I can't watch commercials anymore without a DVR. I mean, and if you've got kids, and if you let them watch the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon, apparently, listen to me, parents, for a second. Every seven minutes, do you know what's going to fill their mind and their heart? Seven minutes into every single program, they're going to be commercial after commercial that will inform them that they cannot be cool or be happy or be content without the latest doll or the latest video game or the latest toy. Did you know my 11-year-old son wants an iPad for Christmas? Did you know that? Do you know why? Because of that commercial. The do, 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 do. I mean, he can play that on the piano, and his grandfather has one. And you know why he wants an iPad, Grandpa? So he can play <laughs> pinball. He doesn't know. He wants to play pinball, and he wants to play it on an iPad. You know where he got that? Madison Avenue and all that slick marketing that takes place. And it's everywhere, isn't it? In commercials and Hallmark movie specials, Christmas cards and all those. You got pictures of happy families. When you see them, there's this table full of food overflowing. There's presents stacked so high around the tree. Images of lights just ornate all around the house. And even the squirrels in the backyard are laughing and frolicking around. <laughs> Who can live up to that? Kids unwrapping their favorite toys and mom and dad announcing as they're done unwrapping all their gifts. And also, in a couple hours, we're taking you to Disney World. And they go crazy. Yay! I don't know if you've seen it, but this year there's a new Lexus commercial out. I, I like it. That's what it says. It starts out by saying, let's be honest. No one has ever wished for a smaller holiday gift. Have you seen this commercial? You're about to right now. Show this commercial for us, Chad. Let's see this commercial.
Let's be honest. No one ever wished for a smaller holiday gift. It's the Lexus December to Remember sales event. And for a limited time, we're celebrating some of our greatest offers of the year. See your Lexus dealer. See? See? Now, the, the bad thing for Kelly is I was really going to give her that, but I was so convicted writing this message that I've taken it back. So it's not going to work out like we had planned. Sorry, baby. So, but you could have a happy wife just like that one if you could just find a Lexus and park it in the driveway with a big red bow on it and a kid that's, oh, Mom, look, you got the Lexus. I mean, hey, if that's where you're headed this year for Christmas, that's all right. And, you know, don't forget your pastor in the midst of that. But for the rest of us, can we just say this is a lie? Can we just say that? This is a lie. A lie that's trying to get you to believe that if you don't wake up on December 25th with a Lexus with a big red bow wrapped on top, then it just won't be a December to remember. And your wife and child will be disappointed, possibly devastated. Just to be rebellious, I would like on the 25th of December to put a big red bow on my 96 Toyota Camry in my driveway and see if any of my neighbors notice anything. Friday morning, I was talking to Andy and Susie Williams. We were in, a, in the hospital, and they were talking about growing up. They've got like 12 or 13 brothers and sisters total in both of their families, so you could imagine. And they're talking about growing up, what it was like for them at Christmas, and what they got uh, typically for Christmas was a shoebox or something like that, and inside were oranges and walnuts and different nuts and apples and a banana, and that's what they got. And they were so excited to get it, like just thrilled to get it. And I started picturing what that would be like in my house. Of, hey, kids. <laughs> Is there a card in here with money? What's the? I thought, yeah. 2,000 years later, 2,010 years later. But you carry this out for a moment. Just think about this. If no one ever wished for a smaller holiday gift, then what does that mean year after year? That means in 2011, you're going to have to at least slightly outdo what happened in 2010, right? And in 2012, you're going to have to just at least slightly outdo what happened in 2011. And it goes on and on. You repeat that year after year until you are crushed under the weight of a thing that we call Christmas that really has turned into a monster, which is why I think outside of the month of August, that's why December sees the greatest number of suicides than any time in the year. And I don't know why August, because that's when I was born, my birthday month, but that's the time that's what... That Christmas, all too often, has become inaccessible to the poor, to the outcast, to the sick, to the lonely, to the unemployed. And when Christmas is no longer good news to the poor, it is no longer the Christmas reflected in the God who became a baby just so it would be accessible to the poor. And in that moment, somebody, someone, and I'm thinking God's people especially, need to just blow a whistle and call it for what it really is. We, we could say it's a, it's a monster that at least needs to be tamed. We're not saying let's cancel Christmas. Forget about gifts altogether. Just let's go back and say what it truly is. Let's identify there's a lie in some of this. Some of this might be okay, but it could be a monster that consumes us in ways that God never intended. In fact, are antithetical to the very nature of our story of Jesus being the reason for our season. That just maybe we can adopt a prophetic voice to remind the world that this season isn't for the wealthy, but for the humble servant who has been waiting on their deliverer. And what is now required is those who have confessed that baby to actually be their Lord and Savior that we follow 
that baby in incarnating in our own lives the good news of God's presence here and now. That Christmas, for us, should be about following after Jesus and being good news. Maybe we take his teaching seriously, and instead of giving to our own family and pouring everything into that, maybe this is the year we incarnate the good news to the outcasts, to the poor, to the sick, and the lonely. Maybe on December 25th, it might include a little celebration at a nursing home. Maybe it might be a visit at the VA hospital. Maybe it might be inviting into your home a widow who lives on your street. That, in my mind, is what I picture where Jesus would be on December 25th among us. Maybe our money isn't charged for toys that will either be broken or discarded at the bottom of the toy box, but money invested in, I don't know, things like hats and gloves and children's books. That it might be time and okay for us to say, hey, you know, a monster could be a monster. It could be overwhelming, consuming. And there might be a prophetic and a very God-given thing that we can do with this celebration that reminds us God, Shekinah, in all of his glory, decided to humble himself and wrap himself in the form of a baby so that even the weakest and most humble can have access. There's a group called Advent Conspiracy. I love what they do. They emphasize in terms of providing clean water for those around the world, but they put together a great video. I want you to see this video that they put together. And just they got some statistics in there I think they are important for us to think through. Hey, maybe Christmas has become something other than what God intended. And we need to go back to that story. But take a look at this video here from Advent Conspiracy.
$10 billion to give everyone in the world clean water, and Americans spend $450 billion on Christmas gifts. Do you hear music? Is that your phone, Taylor? Is that your phone? Wow. Did you see I was in the middle of a dramatic point when that happened? I mean, it was dramatic. They're going to go buy Lexuses now, Taylor. How do you feel about that? Young people these days. <laughs> I know many of you love this time of year, like Taylor. And you're excited. You're shopping. You're buying presents. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or trying to get you to deny your grandchildren or your pastor. I just want us to collectively have permission to say... I'm not going to be bamboozled into believing a lie from Madison Avenue. And I want to give you permission to say that in your family, Christmas may have become a raging monster, and it's okay in Jesus not to acquiesce to it anymore. My imagination this month, I don't want to be captured by commercials and billboards and magazine ads and a pile of catalogs that come into the mail every day and the slick marketing campaign I hear on the radio, but rather I want my imagination this season to be captured by a little baby who's laying in a manger to be accessible to God himself. And that that baby will remind me that God showed up to earth by humbling himself to be good news, especially to the poor and the broken. And that might mean several things. Let me give you three things. It might be for you. One, it might be to scale back to have a just simpler Christmas this year. It might be saying no to this party or that event. or Even church world does that, right? Gets real busy. I mean that it might be okay just to say, we, we need just a time to be simple. Number two, I would say you should have a family conversation about the point of Christmas. And this will be essential because the battle for the minds of our children really has been won in terms of time by TV. And so especially you fathers and dads, let me say it would be appropriate time to sit down with your kids and in the midst of the noise that they hear, let them know truly that this is all about God showed up to the earth to rescue the poor and wrapped himself in the form of a baby, and we're following that baby, and how can we be good news to the poor? It might mean that 11-year-old won't get the iPad this year. It means that my little girl might not get every video game that's on her list, but I'm telling you, my guess is, fathers, there's other ways in which we can think creatively and strategically on how to bless our kids this year with things that will be lasting and matter. I, I have a feeling that no matter what toy I get my daughter, when she goes off to college, it will probably be gone, broken, discarded, no longer necessary. But I wonder what would happen if I wrote her a letter that just told her how beautiful I thought she was and what I thought that God had given her. I put with that a picture. I made a little scrapbook. I wonder if she'd carry that with her to college. And she'll remember, oh, the Christmas of 2010. That it's forced to be creative to say, there are other ways that we can bless our family and our friends and our children that doesn't require I put everything on credit card to hopefully pay off maybe in the next year and maybe not. But there are other ways to remind ourselves once again that Jesus came to be, make God accessible to the poor and to the weak and to the outcast. So in that, I'd also encourage you, we've got on the back table there, it's a green half sheet. Greg put it together and it's a brilliant idea of how to bring Jesus back into the picture of Christmas. It's just, it is passages of scripture that deal with the coming of God on earth. It is about Jesus here. And so just every day there's a scripture reading. And I'd encourage you, grab one of these on your way out. There's green half sheets. 
and go home and every night just spend just a little bit of time reading the scriptures and reminding your family of what this is all about. And finally, number three, what I would say is just to be incarnational good news on Christmas. And I know there's lots of different ways. There's lots of different things you could volunteer for, you could donate to. Totally get that. I would encourage you, whatever it is in your life, whatever you've done, continue to incarnate the reality of being good news. I will let you know one opportunity we have here at the Living Stones Church to be that good news is what we've been talking about now for weeks that we plan on giving every student at Monroe School and every student at Lincoln School a hat, a mittens, and a book. So we've been talking about what we're going to do is we're going to have on the 15th and 16th of December, we've got a Christmas store at Monroe and we've got a Christmas store at Lincoln. And in that, just class by class, every kid gets to go in and pick up for themselves a hat and a mittens and a book, their own book, and put it in a Christmas bag and get to take it home as a way to bless children with things that they need and things that will preoccupy their mind and be good. And so I want you to know you have, in fact, I saw, did you see in the paper? It's on Wednesday. I cut it out. Um, you got the Rick Mecklenburg story, but don't worry about that one. That was a different story. But right, right above it is uh, a girl from, she's seven, Janice White. Did you see the story front on the cover of the local? Janice White here, it says she's holding in her hand 250 pairs of socks, but she's already collected 2,000 hats and gloves that she is going to donate to the Center of the Homeless in South Bend. She's seven years old, and she's collected 2,000 hats and gloves. Now, please, people. If one seven-year-old girl from Elkhart can collect 2,000 hats and gloves, surely those who belong to Livingstone's church can collect 1,000 hats, gloves, and children's books. And so let me encourage you to be generous. And so as you walked in, you might have seen, we've actually, in the little theater this morning in the hallway, the Scholastic Book Fair, they brought their stuff here. And so there's Scholastic Books, which will help you know exactly what lists to buy and what books to buy. And the good news is what Scholastic Books does is they give us a percentage back of anything we buy, which means we get to buy more books. So if we bought $1,000 worth of books, we could actually get $1,700 worth of books. So before you leave this morning, you should stop by the little theater and go buy a thousand, like you personally, buy a thousand books for the kids at Monroe and for Lincoln. And so next week, all that's due in terms of hats and gloves and books and you can get people involved at your workplace, your family. I don't care how it works. If you're like, I don't have time to shop, but I got cash. We take cash. We take checks. In fact, um, in a little bit here is Mark. Mark's going to be back here. Right there. Mark is going to be back there. He's going to be wearing a Santa hat. Is that what you're going to wear? That hat and that bucket. It's just a cheap Martin's fried chicken bucket, but that's what we use. If you want to write a check, just put it in the memo section for the Give 2010. You can give cash, and we'll make sure that we go out and buy all the hats and gloves and books that we need. But this is our venture this year to be good news on Christmas to incarnate, to be the flesh and blood, hands and feet of Jesus to people all around our neighborhood because that's what Christmas is about. And for you who's struggling and who's being crushed by the weight of a monster, I just want you to know in Jesus you can be free. You have my permission to say, I don't have to live under this anymore. And we can think of new ways to celebrate what rightfully is. Our great, powerful, almighty God loving us enough that he would wrap himself in the form of a baby that we could have access. This is our good news. This is our gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Oh, you can clap. I don't want to cut that off. Go ahead and clap. Yeah, that's all right. All right, let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you have humbled yourself. I mean, we, our minds can't even fathom that, that you, the God, or the, the God, the one who, the sustainer and creator of the world, you, God, decided to humble yourself in such a way that you would take the form of a little baby. And in that, you would grant us all access to this manger. And through the one who lays in that manger, 
that you give to us grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sins, that we get rescued, that we get new life. That's what we want to celebrate. That's what we want this month to be about. And so we ask that your spirit would just block out in our hearts and mind noise that's being uh, just broadcast in commercials or TV or magazines or catalogs that would confuse us into thinking this is about anything other than the reality that you came to fix what was broken. And so we left up to you our own lives and say, we're broken in many ways and we need fixed, but we have good news in Jesus. This is our prayer. We pray in his name. Amen.